Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Hey everybody, um, hope spring great. Spring break was great. If you don't know me, my name is Eric, and I'd love to meet you afterwards. But until then, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter twelve, verses one and two. So, if you have your Bibles, please open them there with me and keep them there the whole time. We're going to be going through a couple other places in Scripture, but keep your finger in Hebrews chapter twelve. So, what we're going to do is first, I'm going to read the two verses slowly. And clearly, then I'm going to pray for us, then we'll get started. So, if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. That's the title of my sermon, by the way. Looking to Christ start to finish, if you're a note taker. But, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, you're in heaven. Lord, we are on earth. Please, Lord, show us the difference. Lord, I ask that you would use your word this evening just to penetrate our hearts, to convict us of our sin. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified in every word that I say, that you'd protect me from saying anything more or less than what your word has to say. I pray that you would help us all worship you as um, we go forward. I pray you'd help us all love you more. Most of all, Lord, I pray that your name is glorified. In your son's name, amen. All right, so as you look at this text, you can see very clearly from the start that there are two instructions that we are to do. We are to lay aside our weights and sins, and we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And right after these two commands, you see right at the very beginning of verse 2 how we're supposed to do it and why we're supposed to do them at all. As we lay aside our weights and sins and run with endurance, the race that's set before us, we are to look to Jesus. So looking just past that and seeing that Jesus Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith, the justifier and sanctifier, the beginning and the end, looking at him is where we'll start in this sermon, and looking at him is where we'll finish too. And as you'll see, Jesus Christ in the gospel is the ground that these two instructions stand on. But it's not just the ground for verse 1. The gospel is also the ground that the entire book of Hebrews stands on and the ground underneath the entire Christian faith itself. Meaning, without the gospel, there are no weights and sins capable of being fought, no race capable of being run, and no cloud of witnesses surrounding us because everyone to ever exist would be under God's wrath forever because of unforgiven sin. But it Without the good news that Christ endured the cross for sinners like us, 
the Bible you're holding in your hands would fall apart. It's the ground underneath everything that's important. The gospel is the most important news you'll ever hear. So as we look at it together for the next few moments, please listen closely. So the ground underneath the instructions in verse 1 is the gospel. And the story of the gospel starts with God. In Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God the Father created all things through the Son, by the Spirit. And at the conclusion of creation in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. And at the top of this very good creation was us. Humanity. We were made in God's image, in his likeness. And one of the commands God gave Adam, the first human, in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Shortly after this, as you all know, just a few verses down, and you keep reading in Genesis, Adam and his wife Eve ate from that tree. They sinned rebelling against God's perfect command. And this is the bad news that we need to be saved from. It's spread everywhere, and you guys can see it if you look at the news for like 30 seconds. Now, as we know, everyone in the world to ever have existed has sinned. This is noted in Romans 6.23. And as we just saw in the last verse I read in Genesis, the wages of their sin, or what their sin earns, is death. You see this elsewhere in Scripture too, like James 1 14 through 15. It should be on the screen. You see the anatomy of sin. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then Romans 6.23 also. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin, as Romans 14.23 puts it, is anything that does not proceed from faith. Anything that doesn't come from faith. Sin does not glorify God. It is the reverse. It is not God glorifying. It is God glory stealing. At its heart, it's idolatry. It's worshiping anything other than God. Treasuring anything other than God, the ultimate treasure. It's wicked. Biblically, because of sin, the only thing that all of humanity deserves is death. Both physically on earth and forever under God's wrath in hell. Therefore, anything that we get other than instant wrath from God in hell forever is only because God's gracious to us. Your bed, your clothes, a brain that thinks, the food you ate for dinner, the sunshine, the lights in this room, a building, roof of your head, everything. We don't deserve those things. The only reason we have them is because God's gracious to us and loves us. Sin is so bad that God could immediately send every single person to ever exist into hell without giving them an opportunity to be forgiven, and it would be completely fair. It deserves death, no exceptions. So just as a side note, please don't ever think you can make yourself right before God. Our sin is too bad. Doing good things won't cut it. We can't earn it because we've already earned God's wrath. And by nature, without God's help, sin, the very thing that kills us, is what we crave. Look at John 3.19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works 
or evil. The problem is not that the light's not here. The light's here. It's here. The problem is that we love the dark. Left to our own devices, we just love sin. We love what kills us. It may seem like I'm overstating the depths of sin, but I'm not. It deserves death. And you cannot exaggerate how bad sin is because you cannot exaggerate how good God is. They're completely opposites of each other. You know that. God is life, light, love. Sin is death, darkness, and hate. God is perfectly holy, and without any help from Him, hell is where we would all rightfully go. But the good news is that God did not leave us helpless on our own. Jesus Christ, the infinite, eternal, supremely valuable Son of God, the one who everything in creation was created through, left heaven with his Father and came down to earth to become a man. Like the Creator becoming creation for his creation. We have four books in the Bible that follow his life here on detail, like a biography, and they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you want to learn more about him, I'd suggest reading there. Please learn more about him. Change your life. Following his life in those books, we see that he never sinned, but lived in perfect obedience to God the entire time, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies we see about him in the Old Testament and are referenced in previously in the book of Hebrews that we've talked about in past weeks. And at the end of his sinless life, he was murdered on a cross, dying the way a sinner should have died. But the Bible is clear that he did not deserve this. He's the spotless lamb. But that the reason this happened was so that he could be our substitute, so that he could take our place. You see, he did everything we couldn't by living a sinless life, loving the light that we hated, in perfect obedience to God in our place the entire time. Then he died in our place too, taking the sins of the world off of everyone who would believe in him, putting it all completely and totally on himself, then having all of God's infinite wrath poured out on him on the cross in our place so that we wouldn't have to. So when you picture Jesus Christ on the cross taking on all the wrath of God, remember that that should be us. We deserve that. That should be us. But it's not. He was on that. I just hope you see the love that he has for you. Not only did he perfectly replace us by living and dying as our substitute, he rose from the dead three days later, thereby killing death. So that those who repent from their sins and believe in all that he did for them could rise to new life with him, new life forever. You know, this is like real life, you know? Like this isn't a made-up story of a book that I'm preaching out of and you guys read and we gather around and talk about. The Bible's true. Jesus Christ was a man. He came to earth and he lived in our place and died in our place and then rose from the dead so that we could rise too. It's a true story and it can change your life. We worship the death killer. So in response to this good news, the good news of the gospel, I'll say to you exactly what Jesus said to the people of Galilee at the beginning of his earthly ministry in Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As you probably noticed, the focal point of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He is who we are to look to. And what he did is the ground underneath 
all of Christianity. It's the glue that holds the Bible and your hands together. It's the reality that the witnesses in chapter 11 believed in. And it's the reason why we are supposed to lay aside our weights and sins and run with endurance, the race that's set before us. So now that you know the gospel, please never forget it. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent and believe right now. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. If you are a Christian, be in awe of Jesus Christ. Love him wholeheartedly with all your might. And be encouraged by the rest of the sermon. So, looking back at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Look down with me, and let's get into it. Verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So you can see right from the start that these two verses are directly connected with everything we read in chapter 11. This great cloud of witnesses is no doubt all the saints that we read about two weeks ago in the Hall of Faith in Andrew's sermon. So all these faithful witnesses that were surrounding them, that they look back to, and that we look back to too in the Old Testament, all had faith in God's Word. And if you remember, something that's impossible to miss from chapter 11 is that this faith that these saints had drove them to action. They believed, and they lived in light of what they believed. They had faith and works. They had doctrine and life, words and deeds. When you read the Bible, this pair of believing and doing is inseparable. To have faith, but no supporting actions that give evidence of the faith that you have, to have faith, but no works, James 2 says, is a dead faith. Meaning, to say you believe something and do nothing about it means you probably don't believe it at all. Believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in his name works itself out in faithful living. So thinking about it this way, you can imagine the author of Hebrews standing on the word therefore. Like there's the page of the Bible. He just wrote it. He's just this little man standing on the word therefore. And then turning around, he spreads his arms to everything he just wrote in chapter 11. And he says, since we're surrounded by all these faithful examples of people who believed in God and lived for his glory with all their might till they died, let's look at them and do the same thing. So looking at what he says for us to do alongside the saints in church history, the first thing he tells us to do is lay aside our weights and sins. The author of Hebrews is writing to Christian people, people who have been saved from their sins and are no longer under God's righteous wrath towards it. But as we all know, sin is still something that we struggle with. Notice in verse 1, it clings closely to us. Now a question you might ask is, if we've been saved from our sin and aren't going to be punished for it anymore, what's the point of fighting it and giving any effort to lay aside, right? If it's true that where in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds more every time, why don't we just take the free gift that God offers and keep on sinning? Sin's fun sometimes. To those of you who may be thinking that question, though there's many different places in Scripture that we could go to to talk about the necessity of holy living, I'd like to give one response for you to consider in the form of a question. And this question is found in Romans 6, 2. Right after being faced with the same question in Romans 5, after saying, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, Paul responds by saying, How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Looking to Jesus Christ in the gospel, we see that he died for our sin. He willingly went 
to the cross for us and stayed there until he died. Our sin, our sin is what pinned the perfect, sinless, loving Son of God on the cross. Our sin earned death for us, but Christ took the penalty in our place because he loves us. To be a Christian, then, is to love Christ back for who he is and everything that he did for us, thereby accepting his death as ours. If we love him, then, as many people say that they do, how could we willingly participate in, passively look at, or even disregard as being no big deal, the very thing that held him on the cross, the Son of God who died for us, dying for the sin that he died to save us from. For us who say we love Jesus, if that's not reason enough to fight our sin, we may need to consider whether we love him at all. Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? Please hear this. To borrow a quote from John Piper, God did not just save us so that we could get out of hell. God saved us so that we could run into heaven. We are saved so that we can bring God glory with our lives, not just avoid his judgment. So, fight your sin. But don't just fight your sin. Hate your sin. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Cling to Christ and live for his glory. Now, moving backward a little bit, if you notice, sin isn't the only thing that we're told to lay aside. We're also told to lay aside weights, but not just some weights, every weight. Every weight in sin shows how thorough we have to be in our fight for holiness. So what are these weights? It's a question I asked whenever I was studying for this. Well, we know that they're not sin because if it's sin, then the author of Hebrews wouldn't have said weights. He would have just said sin, right? No need to put that there. But we're still commanded to lay them aside the same way we're commanded to lay aside our sin. So considering this, I'm convinced that weights, that these weights in Hebrews verse 1, chapter 12 verse 1, must be spiritually neutral things that keep us from running to our Savior. Meaning, things that aren't sin in and of themselves, but still hinder us in our relationship with the Lord. Neutral things that have the capability of dominating our lives and slowing our pace towards our Savior. So to give you an example of a weight so that you're better able to, better suited to fight it in your life, um, here's one that I battle with in mine. YouTube. Um, assuming that other people might struggle with YouTube. Um, YouTube's awesome. It's wonderful. I use it to learn lots of stuff. I watch sermons on YouTube, and I just used it last week to fix both of my wife and I's cars. YouTube is not sin. It's great. However, tools can be used for improper things, Right? You could make YouTube become a sin by watching it, watching it for hours on end with no, for no good reason. Or you could even make YouTube become a sin by watching, by watching bad things on it. Like Weights can become sins too. That's just one example. This could go on and on. And you see this idea of weights in a couple places in Scripture. And whenever I was preparing for this, um, two places specifically came to my mind. And that was John 15 and 1 Corinthians 3. So to give you some more clarity on this idea of weights, um, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 3 and see what it says. So it's 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 3 10 through 15, and it's going to be on the screen, but if you can turn there, I'd suggest that so you can look at it better. So verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. 
Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this passage is talking about Christians, and we see this in verse 15. So, so the people Paul is talking about are saved people. Don't miss that. And as you can see, this passage describes our lives as a building, our foundation being Jesus Christ, a.k.a. the gospel, and we see this in verse 11. On top of that, the foundation cannot change. Salvation is secure. The gospel is indestructible. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And like every other building or structure, foundations are meant to be, meant to be built upon. So carrying this image through in light of the Christian life, the foundation is laid when we're saved, when we repent and believe. Then we spend the rest of our lives building on the foundation of the gospel we believed in at first, with the things that we think, say, or do. Those are the materials. Think, say, do, or consume. So, like, you guys are consuming what I'm saying right now, so that's something that you're building on. So I'm partially responsible for what I'm building on your foundation, assuming you're a Christian. So these materials, or everything we partake in in life as we live our race, can be either perishable or imperishable, and will be tested at the end of our lives on the day, which is when Christ returns through the fire of God's holiness. We see later in chapter 12 in your Bible that our God's consuming fire, which is intimidating. But it's, it, it indicates his holiness. So it's going to be tested by the fire of God's holiness. So through this testing, we see that those who build the perishable things, the wood, hay, or straw, resembling things that only have value in the present life, suffer loss. Whereas the people who build on the foundation with imperishable things, the gold, silver, precious stones things that resemble having value both now and forever in heaven, will receive a reward. Both are saved in the end. Again, don't miss that. Yet, some live their lives in more faithful ways than others by intentionally living for eternally valuable things, whereas others let life slip past them by not having an Acts 20-24 mentality of seeing God's mission for their life as being more valuable than, than their life themselves. So as verse 10 says, Take care then how you build on the foundation of the life that God gave you. Don't settle for merely living for the present. We were saved for so much more than to have a rock-solid, immovable foundation, indestructible, to have a house of straw built on it due to borderline faithful living. We don't want wood, hay, or straw on the house that we're building that will get consumed by God's holiness on Judgment Day. We don't want weights, right? We want gold, Strive for gold, Christian. Lay aside your weights and sins. You can actually do it with the power of the Spirit that God gave you when you're saved. So to sum up this command, this point, examine your life and see what weights and sins you need to lay aside for the, way to, for the sake of God's glory. Ask God to open your eyes and see where you're in sin and, and where you can make the best, better use of the time um, for His glory. Then, brace yourself because... You won't like what he shows you. He'll be faithful to answer it, and it's never really pleasant whenever he shows you where you're falling short. Um, but you'll be thankful because you'll be able to cut it off and become more like him and draw closer. 
but it won't be very pleasant in the moment. So moving on now to the next command in verse 1, we see that after we're told to lay aside our weights and sins, that we're told to run with endurance the race that's set before us. Now the race that's set before us that we're running is our Christian lives, beginning with salvation and ending when either we die or Christ comes back. And we're supposed to run this race with endurance. We're supposed to live our lives with endurance. Before we consider this command, though, I'd like you to notice the order at which this command comes to us because it's, it's significant. We cannot run the race of our lives with endurance without fighting the weight and sin that's clinging to us and slowing us down from running. It doesn't work like that, and we shouldn't expect it to. Do, expect it to. So again, fight for holiness and pray to God and His help for doing so. Then you can be in a better position to run with endurance. So now let's consider this command. Now the race in the Christian life isn't necessarily a race where you're trying to beat everyone else. A lot of times um, people describe the race of the Christian life as being a marathon and not a sprint. Meaning it's long and hard and you're ultimately just concerned with trying to finish it rather than beating everyone else along the way. In fact, rather than trying to outrun everyone along the way in the marathon of our lives as Christians, we're actually supposed to encourage everyone else along the way. And you see this earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. We're supposed to spur them onward and taking them with us so that we're all able to cross the finish line at the end of our lives. And practically speaking, the people you do this with, the people you run the Christian, the race of the Christian life with, is the local church. We talk about that all the time here. They're your running partners You see evidence of this by looking through these two verses and zooming out a little bit. If you notice, everything is in plural terms, not individual. Um, Looking at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, if you zoom out, you can see that we are surrounded. Let us also lay aside. Let us run the race before us, the founder director of our faith. Because this is God's word and every single word is put there on purpose, we can be certain that this is significant. The Christian life is meant to be ran with other people. We're all running the same race anyhow. The same starting point, salvation, same boundaries and path, which is God's word, same finish line that we're running to the entire time, which is union with Christ in heaven forever. Okay, we're so we're supposed to endure, I get it, but how are we supposed to endure, Eric? What's supposed to keep us faithful as we suffer for Christ till we die? Some of us will have 80 years of picking up our cross daily and following the Lord. We run with endurance by looking to Christ because he is who we're running to. He is who we're running for. Our prize at the end of our finish line is everlasting bliss with the infinitely valuable Son of God. That's how we can endure because our prize is our Savior. Right? Paul was right in Romans 8.18, saying that the sufferings that we suffer through in life aren't worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us whenever we're face-to-face with the all-living Creator who died for our sins in our place. The question is, though, do you agree with Him? Do you treasure Jesus enough to endure for Him, to run your race with endurance, fighting your sin? He endured for you. You see that in verse 2. Jesus Christ is who we're to look to as we lay aside our weights and sins and run with endurance from the start of our lives to the end, from the day we're saved from our sin to the day we're united with him in his presence. But why? Why is, why is he the person we're supposed to stare at the whole time? Why, why do we look to him? 
So at the beginning of the sermon, I said that Christ is who we're going to look at at the beginning and also who we'd look at at the end. So having looked at him in the beginning in the gospel, we look to him every moment afterwards because of everything we see in verse 2. Because he founded our faith. Because he perfected our faith. Because he endured the cross. Because he despised the shame. And because he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, he wasn't just a faithful witness like everyone in chapter 11. He was the founder of the faith itself. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who saved them. He's the one who everyone is saved through. He's the founder. It's not the other way around. We did not save ourselves. He started the salvation, but he'll also finish it. He finds and he perfects. He creates and he sustains. He justifies and he sanctifies. Look at Philippians 1, 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He begins and he completes. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It will happen. Those in Christ will be found and will be perfected. And we're both found and perfected by looking at Christ and trusting him in his finished work on the cross that he endured for us and for our sin, sins that he did not commit. I hope you noticed this already, but the gospel is not just useful for saving us at the beginning of our lives. It's not just the doorway that we walk through to get into the Christian life so that we learn all this theological stuff in the Bible that after we, and forget what lies behind. The gospel is the reality that sustains us to the finish line. The gospel is the door that we get into into Christianity, and it's also the hallway that we walk through all the way to heaven. It's everything. We look at it from the beginning to the end. The author is the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are already saved, remember? And he's telling them to look to Jesus as they keep living their lives for him. They already believed the gospel. They've been justified. But he tells them to keep looking at how Christ endured the cross for them as they keep running. And we see further that Christ endured the cross for the joy that would be found on the other side, namely the joy of being reunited with God and being seated at his right hand. The joy of reconciling sinners with their Savior. And the joy of being glorified forever and ever for being the supremely valuable Savior of the world. And further, while, further than that, while enduring the cross, he despised the shame that was attached to it. The joy that was set before him so immensely overwhelmed the shame that was attached to the cross. It's as though he said to it, Shame, I hate you. You have no idea how much joy I'm going to experience after I'm through with you. I'll have so much joy that your shame won't even be remembered. When people think about the cross, your tool of choice, they won't see it as a shameful murder device anymore. They'll wear it around their necks, empty, as a proud sign of my victory over you and death because I did away with you when I rose from the dead. You, shame, 
are no match for joy. Now this shame-despising joy that Christ was looking forward to is the very thing that he endured the cross for. Christ suffered for joy. And that joy that he had, the shame-despising joy, is ours too because of what he did for us. His joy is ours. We get the joy of being united with God. We get the joy of being the sinners who are reconciled with their Savior. And we get the joy of praising Christ forever and ever for being the infinitely valuable Savior of the world. And guess what? That shame, that shame that you feel when you're struggling to lay aside the sin in your life that's clinging to you tighter than you ever thought was possible, because of the gospel, despised. That shame is no match for the joy that's set before us and is ours right now because of the gospel. How? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and that's where we're running. He's who we're running to. He is who we lay aside our weights and sins for, and he is how we endure, like all the saints in chapter 11. Just as the great cloud of witnesses endured hardships for the glory of God because they were living for a homeland that wasn't here, so are we. Look to Christ in the gospel. Fight your weights and sins in light of him and run with endurance the race that is set before you for him because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven and that's where we're running. So to conclude, if you're not a Christian, please start your race now by repenting and believing and trusting in Christ and loving him back. He loves you so much. He was willing to die for you and take your place. I just pray that you would just believe that and love him back and repent from your sin that he died to save you from and trust him and live for him, live for him forever. If you are a Christian, look to Christ and fix your eyes on him and keep running to him. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for giving it to us. And Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place and take our sin and rise from the dead. Lord, knowing the, the depths of our sin, we don't deserve that. We deserve to be under your wrath forever. But you sent your son as our substitute, Father. Lord, that doesn't have to be us. Lord, I just pray that as we go, that you would just help us worship you. As we sing, that you'd help us glorify you. And that you please just help us love you more. In your son's name, amen.